Welcome to Body Talk. It's Here's another episode. Keynote speaker, Mr. Walter Echohawk. Enjoy the ride and hang on. Uh, many of you in the room know Walter, and for you, he needs no introduction. Um, for those of you that don't know Walter, I can tell you a bit about him. Um, Walter is uh, a very distinguished Native American attorney. Um, he spent many years at the Native American Rights Fund. He has authored a very incredible book called In the Light of Justice, The Rise of Human Rights in Native America and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, as well as another very significant book, In the Courts of the Conqueror, the 10 Worst Indian Law Cases Ever Decided. He is a Pawnee Indian. He is chair of the board of directors for the Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums. He served as a staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund from 1973 to 2009, where he represented Indian tribes, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiians on significant legal issues in the modern era of federal Indian law during the rise of the modern Indian nations and the tribal sovereignty movement. He wanted me to mention that this January, he'll be teaching at the Daniel Inoue Center at the University of Hawaii. Um, so if any of you would like to come watch him lecture, um, get your tickets down. Um, so without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce Walter Echohawk. Thank you, Carla, for that very uh, kind and generous introduction. And good afternoon to everyone. Um, <clears throat> I want to uh, uh, thank uh, for my invitation to come to this very uh, distinguished uh, group on this important uh, celebration. Uh, I'm indebted to uh, uh, Dean Anaya here at the law school, one of my uh, longtime uh, heroes uh, in my personal life, um, and also uh, Carla Fredericks, the uh, director of CU uh, Law, American Indian Law Program, as well as the Honorable Shander Roy uh, Henriksen, the chief of the secretariat of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Thank you very much for uh, giving me this invitation to speak. And uh, at the outset, I'd like to join the co-sponsors of this uh, conference, including the Native American Rights Fund, uh, in welcoming each and every one of you, especially uh, our visitors from other lands um, and our UN guests. And I'm truly honored to be here uh, because I, stand in awe of the giants who made this landmark declaration that are assembled in this conference, especially the indigenous pioneers uh, who went to the UN, who broke new ground, uh, who worked long and hard, and who never gave up. To me, you are heroes. And also, uh, I am in awe of the U United Nations and the officials that are here, both present and past. I laud your work 
to expand international human rights law and make it accountable to the world's indigenous people, your efforts in this field are legion. And I bow to uh, each of you, the UN people that are here, as well as our indigenous visitors from other land, and each and every one of you who were involved in the making of this landmark declaration. It's very hard to overstate the enormous importance of the declaration to indigenous peoples all over the world. By setting minimum human rights standards for the dignity, survival, and well-being of the world's indigenous peoples, this declaration holds promise of changing the world. It's a transformative document like the Magna Carta, Magna Carta, and on implementation, it'll be very much like Brown v. Board of Education here in the United States, which was probably the most important uh, decision of the 20th century that set our nation on a brand new path. So this declaration is landmark in international law. It's the first time that indigenous peoples were involved in creating a set of standards to meet their own aspirations. And it's the first time that international law is truly accountable to indigenous aspirations. And that represents a fundamental change in international law uh, from oppressing Indian or indigenous peoples during the age of colonialism to in fact restoring the human, political, and cultural rights of native peoples. And if this declaration and its uh, standards are fully implemented, it will fundamentally <coughs> restructure the rights, relationships, and responsibilities between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples uh, in over 70 nations and improve the lives of some 350 million indigenous peoples. We know that implementation is critical and that will be the work for this generation. But the potential is great to make the world a better place and that is why we are here today. And so at this time I would like to uh, celebrate and commemor commemorate the uh, making of the declaration by rendering an honor song for the makers of this declaration. And I, at this time, I would like to ask the UN officials, both uh, present and past, to rise, if you would, at this time. And also ask all of the indigenous peoples here who were involved in the making of this declaration to rise at this time as well. Please rise and be recognized.
I want to render a, a Pawnee honor song. My tribe comes from uh, the Central Plains of North America here in the heart of the United States. The words of this song, which we use at home sometimes uh, to honor people who have accomplished great deeds, basically says this, the great spirit said, many prayers have been offered and now they have been answered. So if you'll rise at this time, I'll try my best to render this song. <coughs> Hey, a tea, hey, a tea, hey, 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 Thank you. I know you're thinking that I should keep my day job, but you're probably right. <laughs> I would like to uh, dedicate my remarks to the late law professor G. William Rice of Oklahoma. He was a uh, great teacher of federal Indian law, a mentor to our young generation of Native American attorneys, and an advocate for international human rights. And his wish uh, in his lifetime was that this UN declaration would be implemented in total. Today, ind indigenous people stand at the confluence of international and domestic law in more than 70 nations around the world. And we can see on the horizon a brand new legal framework for defining indigenous rights, a human rights framework. Thanks to this declaration, we stand at the dawn of the human right era, 
for indigenous peoples worldwide. So this is a historic time. We find ourselves in one of those rare jurisgenerative or lawmaking moments in indigenous history. And the challenge before us in these 70 nations and at the UN is to implement the human rights standards of the Declaration into the domestic law and policy of more than 70 nations around the world. This is a daunting task, seemingly impossible. One of those David and Goliath kinds of struggles. And we stand at the foot of a big mountain. To begin our climb, I think our attention must turn to the domestic arena. Article 38 of the Declaration states that nations must implement these standards into their domestic law and policy in consultation with indigenous peoples. And furthermore, the international law expert, the renowned professor Siegfried Wiesner, rightly tells us that domestic enforcement of international law is critical. He wrote, and I quote, beyond international law's own structures of enforcement, domestic legal systems should be looked upon as the main engines of enforcing international law. So our work now brings us to the domestic arena. Social, a social movement in each of these nations for law reform must be built to create a human rights foundation for defining indigenous rights. And our march to justice must have a strategy a blueprint for social action and legal reform that will bring us to that promised land. And so the purposes of my talk here at this podium in the time that I have are this. Tomorrow, planning workshops will be held at this conference. <coughs> Work groups will develop strategies for implementing the Declaration. That strategy-making strategy planning process tomorrow promises to be very illuminating. And I commend the sponsors of this conference for bringing our minds together to plan our march to indigenous justice. There are some old axioms in war. One being, 
A well-laid plan enables a smaller force to overcome even the strongest foe. So I pray that the Great Spirit will guide us tomorrow in our making of well-laid plans. And as we make our implementation plans uh, to assist tomorrow, I wanted just to add a few of my own thoughts uh, on domestic implementation challenges. As one lawyer that's been engaged in uh, protecting indigenous rights in the United States since 1973. And I hope, uh, it's my hope that it will be helpful tomorrow uh, to consider the concept of strategic law development, strategic law development, as seen in legal history, at least in this country, that uh, methodology uh, has helped social reform movements in American history uh, to bring justice to even the most oppressive situation. It works as sure as the rain must fall. So I want to try to define this methodology of strategic law enforcement. There's many lawyers and law students in this room. We sit in the famous uh, uh, Wolf Law Building on CU campus at the very font of knowledge, or at least near to it. Uh, so I want to try to define this, uh, this social law reform methodology and then look at a couple uh, case studies to illustrate how this has been employed and how it has brought success uh, to other uh, oppressed groups in decades past. So let me turn to that task now. And first I want to identify the advocacy problem that sits before us and then define the term strategic law development and finally talk about some case studies that illustrate strategic law development in action. So first, uh, to identify what is the advocacy problem as an indigenous advocate that now sits before us. And we know that uh, many indigenous peoples around the world live under existing legal systems derived from the early law of colonialism those legal frameworks are often bereft of the human rights principles. So advocates today must find ways to reform and strengthen those frameworks in these more than 70 countries around the world. More specifically, the challenge at hand is to implement the human rights standards of the Declaration into the domestic law and policy of more than 70 nations around the world. As mentioned earlier, this is a daunting task. 
It calls for rising above our day-to-day -day work as attorneys and indigenous advocates. We won't get to the promised land by a business-as-usual approach. And I also think we have to turn our primary attention from the international arena at this point and begin focusing on work at home in the domestic sphere. I'm not saying that international, the international realm is irrelevant, but we already have our foundational document in place now with this declaration. And as Sieg Siegfried Wiesner said, it's the domestic legal systems that are the primary engines of enforcing international law. So what is strategic law development and how can that be employed in our domestic legal systems to embed the human rights principle for indigenous peoples? I would say at the outset that lawyers are trained to be problem solvers. Clients come in the door, they have a problem, they look to attorneys to solve their problem. And so legal advocates are continually searching our legal system for the best forums to present our claims, the best legal theory for presenting our claims, and the best strategy for meeting our clients' needs and solving their problems. Sometimes, sometimes this search entails changing the law. When we see, when we search the system from head to toe and we see the law is inadequate, the law may even be bad. There may not be an adequate forum out there. Then our task as a problem solver, we have to change the law. We have to find or create better forums. And that is a proactive process called strategic law development. It can be done on a very discreet, small issue by issue basis that comes across our desk. It can be done on a small scale client by client basis as well. Or it can be done on a larger, grander scale by advocates when we're faced by systematic legal problems that are at stake. And I want to focus up here um, on large-scale strategic law development done by attorneys as social, acting as social engineers. So my definition of strategic law development basically refers to the problem-solving function of attorneys and on a large-scale uh, strategic law development effort, I define it simply as the tactics and strategies used by attorneys as social engineers to reform the law for the better, to provide effective remedies for clients, 
and to solve a problem. And the premise of large-scale strategic law development is basically that the law is imperfect. It's merely a man-made institution and it needs a continual, well-directed study of its defects and how to cure them. This idea is not new, it's been around a long time. It's seen in the writings of Roscoe Pound, and I would refer you to uh, his article, The Lawyer as Social Engineer, 1954. Roscoe Pound saw the law as a mechanism for social change, uh, he looked at what he what is termed sociological jurisprudence, in which the law is a means for reform and an agent for social change. And in this process, the lawyer is a social engineer who assists in the administration of justice. In that role, uh, attorneys must be highly skilled practitioners who are perceptive problem solvers. Um, in that capacity, the administration of justice, a goal is to help the courts and to help our lawmakers achieve needed reforms so that those institutions can bring the law to its highest and finest hour. And history has shown in our country that in social justice movements, strategic law development has been a critical methodology for success. And I want to just draw your attention briefly to two uh, case studies uh, that illustrate this point that might give us uh, lessons learned and some food for thought in uh, developing our well-laid plans tomorrow. Uh, the first case study is the uh, Black American um, um, experience or uh, social justice movement from Plessy v. Ferguson, which was handed down in 19, 1896 all the way to Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. A 58-year struggle that is uh, really uh, well told by Richard, Richard Kluger in his uh, big book uh, entitled Simple Justice. This is a very riveting tale, very familiar to uh, Americans. But he uh, points out that uh, American slavery, uh, which was legalized by the Marshall Court, um, was an institution that was as fully severe and demeaning as any recorded in history. There were no legal rights accorded to slaves, no access to the courts, thanks to Scott, uh, the Dred Scott decision. No, they could own no property. They had no freedom. They were 
simply living life in human bondage. It was even illegal to teach black Americans. Uh, their minds were in slavery, were left to uh, atrophy. And nothing, according to Richard Kluger, departed so dramatically from our core values than the institution of human slavery. There were efforts in the 19th century by way of background to ending slavery, the, the Civil War, uh, the enactment of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, the civil rights laws that were passed in the 19th century. And yet, by the end of that century, uh, this in, entrenched uh, racism prevailed. Uh, the Supreme Court essentially wilted and then handed down this infamous uh, Plessy v. Ferguson that, that established the, the American law of racial discrimination under the separate but equal doctrine. That is, racially segregated schools can pass constitutional muster so long as they're equal to the white schools. The impact of that doctrine, of course, on black America uh, was to free American racism from any bounds placed upon it by the law, to release any inhibitions, uh, and it, it did unleash a torrent of uh, racial hatred, Jim Crow laws in every sector of our country. Um, and so that by the early 20th century, Whites uh, despised and ridiculed and tormented the black race in this nation as never before, even, even during the slavery era. So the NAACP uh, began a social movement to move from that legal framework of racial discrimination to equality under the law. It was founded in the year 1910 with the goal of stemming the tide of prejudice that was engulfing black America. It sought to provide legal relief for the black race and it picked the courts as the battleground as the, great, as the great equalizers, the court systems. But the hurdles that NAAC faced in 1910 were immense. There was a great need uh, for remedial relief. 10 million black Americans were facing uh, systematic discrimination. It was a severe problem, lynchings, Jim Crow laws. So there was an urgent need to bend the law and make it more just. But unfortunately, there was no such thing as civil rights law in 1910. There were no black attorneys in 1910. There were no law schools that would let blacks uh, learn the law except for Howard University, which was a tumbled down 
brick building that was unaccredited. There was no battle plan that NAACP had in 1910. It had no money. So one by one, the, uh, these hurdles were overcome by the NAACP, even though it stood at the foot of a big mountain at that time. Among the earlier uh, ingredients for its march, march to justice was, was strategic law development to put together a strategy, a litigation plan. And that was done in 1934 by the Margold Plan. And the, the, the essence of that plan was to use existing law to litigate under the existing legal framework established by Plessy v. Ferguson the separate but equal doctrine, but to find the most protective features within that existing framework that could advance Black American aspirations. Why did they pick uh, the existing legal framework to accomplish their goals? They didn't want to antagonize a hostile Supreme Court. So they said, we'll just go with existing legal framework as we find it. We'll try to use the best features that we can find within it, and we'll take it as far as we can go. And with that strategy, under the theory that uh, uh, to be equal, the schools have to be to, to pass. Uh, the schools must be truly equal to pass constitutional muster. NAACP targeted the worst schools in the country the most in, unequal schools, and litigated uh, to enforce the most protective features that could be found within that framework. And one by one, these unequal uh, schools begin to fall. Then, several years later, NAACP found its champion. It found its hero in the ranks of, uh, of uh, black attorneys, uh, Thurgood Marshall, the Thurgood Marshall era from 1934 to 1954. Uh, he led the NAACP defense fund. It only had five staff attorneys in 1950. He argued and won 29 of 32 Supreme Court cases. But by 1950, this legal strategy of NAACP came to a crossroads. It had brought black aspirations as far as it could go. The Supreme Court in a trilogy of cases in that year agreed with their legal theory, their legal theory. Schools gotta be separate but equal. So to go any further, NAACP had to sue, had a choice. It could either sue each and every single solitary segregated school in the nation from now to kingdom come, which would have been like emptying the ocean one cup at a time, or it could change its strategy and mount a frontal assault 
on the, on the separate but equal doctrine itself and argue that racial segregation is inherently discriminatory in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. They chose the latter using another old time axiom from the law of war. Uh, when that door opens, you must rush through it and seize your prize. And they had the momentum at their back with this trilogy of Supreme Court cases. They had the U.S. Justice Department lined up. They had a large army of law professors and scholars that were providing uh, assistance. They had a huge network of local co-counsel for their nationwide cases of these five staff attorneys. And they began at, in 1950 the final march to justice by an all-out frontal assault on the Plessy Doctrine. And that came to pass in the victory in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. When Thurgood Marshall walked into that courtroom, he would not be denied and he overcame the attorneys that were arrayed against him. And he made a place in heaven for our civil rights attorneys and our public interest attorneys. You can't find many lawyers in heaven. But, <laughs> but we got a little place there. But that, that, that legal campaign has a lot that can teach us. And I commend that book to us, our, our reformers in this room here. It placed America on a bland, brand new path that two generations later allowed us to elect the first black American president of the United States. And it was the most important decision uh, that changed the complexion of America that was handed down in the 20th century. My second case study is the American Indian Tribal Sovereignty Movement from about 1960 to the present day, which was a march in the United States from federal policies of termination to those of self-determination. A 57-year struggle. Native America didn't face slavery and its troubling aftermath. Rather, we faced an equally egregious human rights situation in this nation, the legacy of conquest and the legacy of colonialism. With the harsh ill effects that are very well known in our history, invasion, more than 40 Indian wars, the appropriation of Indian lands, which by 1950, we only had less than 2% of our land base, disease, destruction of our cultures, our indigenous habitats, the loss of our sovereignty or, uh, and subjugation. Many of those lingering uh, effects were still seen in 1960. We had just come through the Nadir of Indian country 
in the early 50s through this termination policy, which I think is one of the end products of the law of colonialism. We were living with the dark side of federal Indian law pursuant to the Tihatun case that was handed down in 1954 or 55 by the same court that decided Brown, the Board of Education. We had communities engulfed by historical trauma. And so the goals of that generation in the 1950s and 60s and on down to the present day was to co coax the government from its destructive policies here in the United States uh, and uh, to a more enlightened policy of Indian self-determination. In 1970, Richard Nixon, President Nixon, handed down this Indian self-determination policy. That was the crowning success of 20 years of indigenous advocacy in the United States. But in 1970, it was only a policy. It remained to be implemented across the country. And that became the work of two generations from 1970 to the present date to implement self-determination across our country. And we used a strategy fairly similar to that of NAACP. We simply took the existing legal framework as we found it, which had some protective features, but also had a dark side to it. And we tried to coax the courts, and Bruce Green, I see you here as one of the early litigators there, to coax the courts into uh, applying the protective features of federal Indian law and, and the government as well. That is the doctrine of inherent tribal sovereignty from the Wooster decision, together with its protectorate principles. And then we simply lived with the dark side of the law. We made no effort to overturn the 10 worst cases of of uh, federal Indian law ever decided. We didn't mount any frontal attacks on Johnson v. McIntosh, Lone Wolf, Tiaton, and the others that make us poor, that hold us back, that render our victories vulnerable. We simply lived with that dark side, but we came a long way and we witnessed the rise of our modern Indian nations in this country under that strategy. Um, but I submit to you today, we can go no further in our aspirations. We've ridden that pony as far as it can take us. And to go any further in our aspirations, we have to turn and mount a frontal assault on the dark side of federal Indian law. We stand today here at the same crossroads that NAACP stood in 1950. So today our task is to reform the dark side of federal Indian law I think, and reform the dark side of the law, indigenous law in other countries, 
The question has always been, well, what do we replace it with? The answer is seen in this declaration. Let's replace it with human rights. These are the strongest principles known to man. They were the principles that uh, were referred to in the American uh, Revolution. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that, that people possess higher powers that come to us from higher rights, from higher authorities, including the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These human rights pre precepts uh, were on our lips at every juncture during the rise of this democracy, the growth and expansion of this democracy. And um, I think we need to uh, go back to the basics and, and uh, bring the native peoples within the ambit of that. And we use strategic law development along the way in this tribal sovereignty movement, but only on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. We used it to get the Indian Child Welfare Act passed, as Jack Trope is familiar with. We used it to get the NAGPRA legislation enacted. We used it in the uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act amendments to overturn the infamous Smith decision. But we've never brought a frontal assault on these Supreme Court cases that, that uh, comprise the dark side of federal Indian law. So these are uh, some case studies. Uh, I think that uh, some lessons learned is, uh, I think one of them is that we can kind of look and see uh, around today that uh, indigenous peoples, uh, I think are better positioned now to begin their march to justice in the year 2017 than NAACP was in 2019 -10. We have our international human rights instrument in place in this declaration. In many countries, Native peoples, including here in the United States, have amassed skill, bravery, and experience from the last two generations of indigenous rights, uh, legal and social justice work. We have, I think, the wind at our back with the passage of this UN declaration after 20 years hard work in the UN human rights framework, 150 nations have endorsed it, making it the new order of the day. So I think now we're poised for the final push in these 70 countries, in these domestic legal systems, we have here in our own land more than 2,000 Native American attorneys. When John Echohawk and I went to law school, there was less than a dozen. You could count us on fingers and toes. <laughs> I think the second lesson uh, we have here is that law reform is the key, folks, in our march to indigenous justice. Our domestic legal systems are the main engines for enforcing international law 
And that includes these standards in the declaration. We need lawyers of a certain kind. It's another lesson I think learned in both of the Black America movement and the American Indian kind of sovereignty movement. You need lawyers of a certain kind. Public interest lawyers that are visionaries that can act as social engineers. Not just lawyers who are content to stand pat on the shoulders of their forebears, but lawyers who are social engineers versed in strategic law development methodologies and conversant in the language of human rights. Further, I think as we lay our well-laid plans tomorrow, we, we should also think about the role of legal scholars and legal theorists in our march to justice. In these other case studies, uh, they wore many hats in those campaigns. They per performed the brain power. They helped develop strategies. They provided amicus brief support in the cases. They trained a new generation of legal advocates. And to the law professors, I would say, uh, it's not enough simply to teach federal Indian law and the holdings of individual cases without teaching students to look beyond our legal framework to the larger picture. Finally, other lessons learned just quickly, and I'll wrap up here. We need a command center in each of these domestic legal systems in these more than 70 countries. Infrastructure, we need seed money. We need a strategy to be put in place as our foundation or compass as we navigate new waters here. And the axiom there is that the general this is another war axiom for you veterans here. The general makes many calculations in his temple before the battle begins. Um, and then, of course, we need to mobilize the larger sectors in each of these countries to assist indigenous peoples. Black America could not have overturned Plessy v. Ferguson all by itself. It needed help from other Americans of goodwill. The tribal sovereignty movement could not have accomplished its work either without coalition building in these uh, issues that I mentioned earlier as well. So there are lessons out there that can be learned that can be put to, to, to use, and they work as sure as the rain must fall, as sure as the rain must fall. So with that, uh, you know, we can uh, look around. Uh, the world is now embarking on implementing this UN Declaration 
worldwide. Countries are in a different stages of implementation. Uh, it's easy to pass a law, but hard to enforce it. But hard to enforce it, and that I think is the task at hand. In Canada, we can look. We can look to the north in Canada, and see there's nearly 20 cases, or probably about more than 20 cases that discuss this UN declaration brought by First Nations in Canada, beginning a judicial discourse into the nature of human rights for the First Nations. In Canada, advocates have gotten a bill, got a bill introduced in their parliament to incorporate uh, the declaration into Canadian policy. In Canada, human rights are on the lips of the First Nations peoples up there. They're very conversant with human rights in that nation. In the United States here, um, our country endorsed this declaration in 2010. Um, but I think Indian country was unfamiliar with it, slow to get, grasp that opportunities that were presented. Um, you might say we failed to act uh, during the Obama administration when that window of opportunity was open. But we've been involved in a self-education process in Indian country here in the United States. We've had conferences on the subject, National Congress of American Indians, tribal leader forums, grassroots organization conferences, such as the Seventh Generation Fund. Uh, we have the uh, uh, groundbreaking uh, uh, report done by UN Special Rapporteur James Anaya in the year 2012 that shows, it's entitled The Situation of Indigenous Peoples in the United States of America. It shows us the starting where we begin our march to justice. It makes recommendations for change. It's one of those rare uh, transformative documents that comes across the once in a great while as a harbinger and catalyst for change. Um, we have Greg Bigler, Judge uh, Bigler's group in Oklahoma now, composed of uh, traditional people in Oklahoma, tribal leaders, some tribal attorneys that are translating the UN Declaration into the Muscogee Creek language and uh, beginning uh, talks about how we can go about implementing those uh, uh, standards. Uh, and also now we have the Native American Rights Fund as our premier public interest uh, law firm for Native America, teaming up with the Colorado University School of Law uh, to form a joint project for implementing this UN declaration in our nation here which I hold to be a very, very significant step in our nation. So I think we're poised here in our nation to begin a march towards justice. 
even though right now we have no case law, we have no bills being presented at any lawmaking body in Congress, we're at a very nascent stage, but we're poised. So in conclusion, folks, um, I uh, commend these thoughts to you as we make our plans tomorrow. The ball is in our court, and tomorrow we begin making implementation plans. From where the sun now stands, let us work for the full implementation of human rights for indigenous peoples worldwide. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Walter, for that amazing talk. Um, we will reconvene in 10 minutes in the courtroom. 10 minutes in the courtroom. <laughs>
and this neighbor and his and the guy down the road, everywhere. That flag was a sign of our heritage. At least that's what I was told. What heritage might you ask? A heritage of simple, hard-working Christian folk. Patriots who love their country and their neighbor. As long as your neighbor looks like you. Because I'm here to tell you, I didn't have any black neighbors. In fact, you had to go about 20, 30 minutes down the road before you got to the black neighborhood. Or where I'm from, they refer to as the bad part of town. You see, racism, where I'm from, is so casual, it's hidden. Hidden in plain sight. I didn't know it existed. The N-word was daily vocabulary. I didn't even know that was a bad word. Growing up, I learned that people who sag their pants are thugs. Growing up, I learned if you live in government-assisted housing, it's because you're too lazy to get a job and work hard like us. Growing up, I learned that these people get food stamps and sell drugs. You see, one day my dad was going on a rant about just that when a guy knocked at my door. So I went and let him in. The guy went and sat with my dad, handed my dad some money. My dad weighed out the right amount of marijuana and gave it back to him, you know, a drug deal. And then my dad took the money from that drug deal and he put it in his wallet, right next to some red, yellow, blue, green food coupons may have heard of them, they're called food stamps. Did my dad see the hypocrisy of us having food stamps and selling drugs while he's telling me about these people getting food stamps and selling drugs? No, because my dad would explain it like this. Son, I work hard and I pay taxes, so I deserve these food stamps. And I don't make enough money and I want to provide for you children, so I got to sell these drugs to make ends meet. You see the hypocrisy of that. The cognitive dissonance is cringeworthy. How could my dad, an otherwise intelligent man, be so ignorant? Easy. It's a toxic cycle of white supremacy and white ideology that has survived the test of time. You see, during slavery, only rich white people could afford to enslave other people. But to prevent the poor white people from empathizing with the plight of enslaved black people, what the rich white people did was this. They told the poor white people, hey, if you work hard, you can be like us. And what they did was they gave them management positions on the plantation, called them overseers. That way they were more important than the enslaved black people. The idea was simple. You might be poor, but hey, at least you ain't black. That ideology, that mindset has survived the test of time. Fast forward to my dad sitting in the living room ranting about these people with food stamps and drugs while selling drugs and using food stamps. I can hear it. We might be poor, but at least we ain't black. This is a cycle. And understanding that cycle, understanding that context, understanding this history is the key to dismantling white supremacy. Breaking that cycle is the key to defeating racism. Because I want you to understand, and this is very important, that although white America's busy spinning conspiracies of white America being targeted, there's no tangible quantifiable evidence to justify their case. But ironically, the same people that believe that will refute systemic oppression against the black community when there's tangible, quantifiable evidence to prove it. The United States Department of Justice statistics show a black man's three times more likely to be killed by the police than a white man. The United States Sentencing Commission 
has proven that a black offender will receive a 19% longer sentence on average than a white offender, same crime, same criminal background. A black mother is three times, four times more likely to die during childbirth than a white mother. 22% of black Americans live in poverty, only 9% of white Americans live in poverty. If you're a black American in this country, you're 2.5 times more likely to live in an environmental justice neighborhood. That means you're next to a power plant, next to a waste dump, next to a structure that poses significant health risk, regardless of your income. These are irrefutable facts, tangible evidence that shows black America is disproportionately disadvantaged in this country, yet the vast majority of white America calls that government lies. Refuse to believe it exists. But yet, somehow, we're the ones being targeted. <laughs> Why? It's easy. Because we have been told by white supremacy that we are the center of the world. If you don't think like me, that's a you problem. If you don't dress like me, that's a you problem. If you don't act like me, if you don't believe like me, if you don't do your hair like me, that's a you problem. Most importantly, if your experience is not like mine, well, that's a you problem. It could not possibly be the system that was built by us, for us. I remember when my son was five years old, he wanted to play baseball. So I signed him up for the local recreational league team. First things first, we got to go buy a baseball glove, you know. So I take him out, and at the very first store, I ran into a problem. A problem I didn't foresee coming. I told my son, I said, pick out whatever glove you want, son. I want you to be happy with your equipment. So he picked out a glove. But then it turns out I couldn't buy that one for him because he's left-handed. And then he picked out another glove, another glove, and continually couldn't buy them. He had to settle for his fourth choice because, well, they didn't have any for left-handed players. As a right-handed person, I had never really thought of this. As a right-handed person, I never came across this kind of inconvenience. Now, my son picking out baseball gloves is a far cry from the life and death reality of not being white in America, but it's important to point out that in this America that was made with white supremacy woven in every fabric of every system, these standards of whiteness have been passed down. It's easy for us as white Americans to not see the pain the inconvenience, discomfort, and the danger of our non-white fellow Americans that are living in the very same country. I remember when I was 10 years old, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, what does the South will rise again mean? It was on the flag in the front yard. And it was on people's t-shirts and bumper stickers and everywhere I went, South will rise again. Everybody knew something I didn't know, so I wanted to know what was going on. My dad looked at me and said, son, one day, it's going to be illegal to be white in this country. It's going to be illegal to be Christian in this country. It's going to be illegal to be straight in this country. And when that happens, straight, white, Christian men are going to have to stand up and fight for our freedom just like our forefathers did. And my dad believed that. And when he told me that when I was 10 years old, I believed it. So you see, when you juxtapose that ideology with the ramblings of Trump cultists and QA non-conspiracists, you start to see this is not a new phenomenon. These ideas, these conspiracies, these standards of whiteness, they've been around for a long time. My dad believed it and his dad before him, and he told me when I was 10, 30 years ago. It is important that we understand these cycles 
and what these toxic ideologies are so that we can fight them, so that we can end them. You understand, the way we talk as white Americans, that's the standard. Dialects like African-American vernacular English is considered low class and uneducated. The way we wear our hair, that's the standard. I've never had to change my hairstyle so I can go get a job. My hairstyle's never been banned by an employer's manual. Even the way my parents named me is the standard. I don't have to worry about my name on a resume being the reason that my resume is overlooked. All of this is a reality in this country made possible by my white ancestors creating a white system that benefits me. Now, it is worth noting that we've made great progress in the area of civil rights thanks to countless black liberation movements, countless social liberation movements. But even now in 2022, racism and white supremacy still very much exist. I aim to defeat it before I die. The way I do that, I spent the, last, I spent the majority of the last two decades trying to understand white supremacy, but more important, trying to understand how it continues to thrive in my community. I came to three conclusions that I think are very important. This is the reason that white supremacy stays alive in our country. Number one, it goes unchecked. These, every white person that's listening to this, in this room or in this country has heard a joke behind closed doors or has heard these baseless conspiracy theories that I'm talking about being spread, or has heard about how reverse racism is attacking white America. And as a white person, if you do not call that out, if your family, friends, coworkers are doing these things and you say nothing, you are an accessory to murder. Your silence allows these hateful ideologies, conspiracies, and dangerous rhetoric to continue to fester and be passed down to the next generation of white supremacists. Your silence is quite literally violence. Number two, lack of education. 99% of white America look at dead in the face right now and say, I'm not a racist. 98% of them couldn't define what racism is. Our entire American education system is whitewashed. Even our history books, they're nothing more than romantic fiction novels in which all the heroes are white. It is our civil responsibility, our duty, to combine our collective voices and demand that our education curriculum be revised, revamped. That our history books tell the truth about the rights and wrongs of yesteryear so that we can have less wrongs and more rights in the years to come. And number three, I saved this to, for last because it's the most important in my book, equity and inclusion. If we aim to dismantle white supremacy, then white Americans must stop treating equity and inclusion as a personal attack on us. There's been tons of legislation that's been passed to demand legal equality. 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, Voting Rights Act of 1865, Voting Rights Act of 1965, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, vote, uh, Civil Rights Act 1964. We can make a very long list of legislation, but yet without equity and inclusion, the problem still exists today because you cannot legislate morality. It is incumbent upon us to understand these systems and these standards of whiteness that I've referred to today and how they continue to thrive and survive, we must stop the cycle. In this proverbial right-handed world where everybody who's not white is proverbially left-handed, 
We must understand that the justice system, the policing system, the education system, the medical system, the financial system, the banking system, the prison system, all these systems are being used against our fellow citizens to oppress and marginalize them. We must have radical ground up change on every system in America, period. White people, admitting that white supremacy exists is not an attack on us. Admitting that our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents created this system to benefit us is not an attack on us. Stop treating it like that. Admit there's a problem and become part of the solution. We must embrace our fellow human beings. The statistics I provided today, these numbers validate the struggle, the reality of not being white in America. Nobody's asking white people to have less or be less. All that's being asked is that our fellow Americans have and be just as much. Now I could talk for hours on this, but I was only given 15 minutes. So I'm going to conclude with this. Number one, I implore everybody who heard me say this to look deeper into each one of these topics. But if you're a white person listening to me, then I implore you to do this. Number one, speak up. Without us as white Americans speaking up within our communities and saying no more, no more of the jokes, no more of the let's, let's make fun of other people, no more of these toxic conspiracies. No, let's speak up. My silent will not be compliance in your violence. Until that happens, we can't end white supremacy. Number two, educate yourself. Are you a racist? That's not a yes or no question. Racism is a spectrum. How much do you know about it? Educate yourself. There's so many books, so many great black educators out there that have spoken on this topic. Educate yourself. Dig deeper. Get uncomfortable. And most importantly, educate your children. We've got to raise the change we want to see in the world. And then number three, get involved. We as white people have a privilege in this country to walk into a city council, walk into a school board meeting, and our voice has power. Use your privilege for power. Demand equity and inclusion in your local schools. Demand equity and inclusion in your local city council meetings. Demand equity and inclusion in your budget for your city. We got standardized testing in schools, but we don't have standardized resources. Demand it. This is how we help end white supremacy. I, my name is Russell Ellis, and I was a racist. I'm a reformed racist and white supremacist. If I can do it, you can too. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming to my TED Talk. I had just finished teaching Introduction to American Politics to a group of eager undergraduates. This was my first year teaching, but I had pulled off a slamming lecture, and I was feeling good about myself. As I left the classroom, I looked down at my phone and saw that I had five missed calls from my brother, Kenny. At the time, Kenny was a student, and living, a student at Temple University and living in North Philly. For those who don't know North Philly, it's an area that is predominantly black and low income with a very visible police presence. When I return his phone call, Kenny is loud and swearing into the phone. I can tell that something very bad happened, but I'm not sure what. When I am finally able to get him to calm down, he tells me how he was sitting on the stoop of his building talking to a friend. 
when four police officers ran up on him and threw him and three others on the ground, handcuffed them, and then pushed them up against a wall, all the while asking them, what drugs do you have? What drugs do you have? Kenny had no drugs. He told the officers this many times, but each statement of no drugs only seemed to provoke more force and make the officers more upset. As Kenny sat cuffed and slumped against a brick wall, he quietly told the officers that he was a student at Temple University, and without reason, they could not hold him. The officers finally retrieved his college ID, which was in his wallet that had slipped out when he was slammed to the pavement, realized that he was indeed in college without drugs, and then let him go. After Kenny told me the story, he was still loud and upset. I was shaking, barely able to hold the phone to my ear, all of the joy from my great day of teaching gone, and replaced with a deep sense of helplessness and alarm. I wanted to remove the hurt and frustration that Kenny felt, that I could hear so clearly through the phone, but I neither had the will nor the ability to lie to him about the mightiness of American racism. And we both silently knew that this would not be the last time that he would be stopped and frisked by the police for drugs. In an attempt to try to calm him down and to shift attention onto something that he perhaps did have control over, I had this genius idea and suggested that he focus his attention on schoolwork to kind of take his mind off of things. He yells into the phone at me, what is that going to do? Why should I focus on my schoolwork when the police are allowed to do things like this? And then he says to me, I'm not a student in your class, Megan. Your books are not going to save me. I silently nodded on the other end of the phone. In a lifetime of often heated exchanges with him, I've probably never been more wrong. And he has never been more right. Kenny is not alone. This violent interaction between black men and women and police officers plays out in cities and towns across the United States, often with much more devastating results. According to the most recent statistics, blacks are three times more likely to be shot and killed by police than whites. The question on everyone's mind, and the question that I get asked the most, is how do we solve this problem? And I confess, I cringe at this question, not because it's not a good question, but because I think we're asking the wrong question. I'm not convinced we even understand how we got to this point in the first place. Better understanding of the root causes of the current place where we are will help provide us the tools that we need to move us forward. However, even I, conf I confess that even I sometimes am more eager to solve a problem than I am to understand it. So a few years ago, I adopted a corgi from a shelter and named him President Bartlett off of the West Wing. <laughs> now, now, he's super adorable, but he was abused, and he's very aggressive whenever he sees another dog. My fix in my first year was to walk him at crazy hours of the day, but this, was, this was only, worked only marginally well and I was stressed and tired. The following year, I decided to hire a trainer to try to figure out the underlying issues behind his reactive behavior. On the first day of our meeting, the trainer looks at me and says, fixes that do not address the root causes, 
of an issue are not really fixes at all. I realized that in my haste to fix President Bartlett, I actually had made him worse. The present crisis surrounding race in the United States, I think, suffers from a lack of attention to the root causes. Better attention to the root causes, I am convinced, will help us to figure out how to move past where we are right now in terms of the current racial climate in the United States. So why does the killing of unarmed blacks continue to happen? I think it continues to happen because we have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong cure. And what I mean by this is we tend to think the problem of racial violence is isolated to a few sovereign racists, right, that haven't yet drunk kind of this progressive Kool-Aid. And we tend to think the cure to racial injustices in the United States should always revolve around education. In the rest of my talk today, I'm going to challenge both of these ideas and suggest a new way to understand the problem as well as the solution. First, part of the reason the killing of unarmed blacks continues to happen at an alarming rate is because we haven't properly addressed our long history of racial terror in this country, which has treated blackness as a proxy for criminality, as a substitute for criminality. Instead, when confronted with kind of these jarring racial injustices, what we like to do is to point to the bad racist apples. We like to individualize the problem and situate it away from us. This is why we're able to make sense of, let's say, a Dylan Roof, the shooter in Charleston, South Carolina, who shot up the black church and had a white power manifesto. But the problem of contemporary racial violence is not that we have a few kind of racist bad apples. The problem is that the whole tree, the whole apple tree, is infected. The problem is that the presumption of dangerousness is tightly bound to race for so many in this country. For police officers to justify the use of deadly force, they have to reasonably believe that their lives are in danger. And all of the high-profile killings of blacks over the past year, officers attest to feeling under threat. But what does this mean in the context of unarmed citizens? It means that black skin triggers a heightened sense of threat, a life-threatening sense of threat, that then influences the officer's decision to use deadly force. According to the most recent statistics, 33% of blacks that have been killed by police were unarmed. But it's not just police that prop up this myth of black danger. This myth gets reinforced and takes on a truth-like quality through everyday interaction. When a black man passes and a woman clutches her purse, or when a group of black friends walk by a car and hear the jarring sound of someone who has just pushed their automatic locks because they are afraid. And I have, and I have friends on both sides of this, uh, black men with great jobs who just want to be viewed as a person and not as a threat after a long day of work. And I have really great white and Asian woman friends who clutch their purse and walk quickly if they see a black man on a dimly lit street, and then feel ashamed and a need to overexplain their actions to me. And I've also been on the receiving end of having who I was reduced to someone else's false perception of how much of a danger I posed. Last year, I was coming back from a trip, um, and I was singled out by the TSA agent. I thought that I had left a water bottle like I often do in my bag, 
But he, he ushered me to a separate area, and then two more TSA agents surrounded me. And I knew in my gut that something bad was about to go down. Um, the lead TSA agent proceeds to ask, no, accuse me of bringing a weapon into the airport. When I insisted that I did not bring a weapon into the airport, he produces a piece of costume jewelry, a double ring that I had picked up for $4 on vacation. It was like his gotcha moment, and it was my super confused moment. Um, he then accuses me of bringing brass knuckles, a deadly weapon, into a United States airport. I was almost at a loss of words, which is rare for someone like me, but I politely pointed out to him that the ring was plastic, it wasn't brass, and these weren't knuckles, it was just a ring that went over two fingers instead of one finger. But have you ever talked to someone and felt like you didn't exist? Like when they spoke to you, they spoke right through you. Well, that's how I felt. He got more angry at my explanations, looked me in my face and said, you people always lie. I know that this is a weapon and I'm not going to let someone dangerous like you board a plane today. Well, I started to shake, right? Because We've all seen this movie about the brown girl who walks into the airport with a deadly weapon, and it never really ends well for her. It doesn't. <laughs> it never does. Um, so I had to do what I hate doing, and I used my credentials to get me out of a bad situation. I told, them, I told him that I was a professor of constitutional law and American politics. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like, yeah. So, <laughs> I told him I cited U.S. criminal code, landmark Supreme Court decisions, and rules from the Homeland Security Rulebook because I also teach civil liberties. And then, and then he started to get very nervous. <laughs> he, asked, he asked what school I worked at. I told him he Googled my name and the blood drained from his face, right? As he realized I wasn't making this up, I knew my rights, and I was a college professor. And then when he looked back at me, he finally saw me, not as a dangerous threat, but as a person. After a few more minutes, he let me go to catch my much-delayed flight. I found a seat in the airport terminal, still trembling with rage at the way that I had been treated. I was only seated for a few minutes when I felt a tap on my shoulder, a woman airport worker said that she saw my whole ordeal and that he does this all the time to black passengers, and I was lucky to have been released from his custody so quickly. But it shouldn't take a university website profile to be viewed as non-threatening, right? Like, like, it just... <laughs> part, of the, part of the reason I share this story and some of the other ones is that I think in, in talking about the current racial crisis, we tend to focus all of our attention on police and overlook our own complicity in creating an environment in which black lives are not treated as equal. To be clear in thinking about solutions to the racial violence, I'm in favor of body cameras. I'm in favor of a non-militarized police force. I'm in favor of stricter laws that make police officers more accountable when they stop and frisk people on the street. But I'm not convinced that we would need something like body cameras if we didn't live in a society that treated blacks as dangerous and suspicious first and as citizens seconds. second. It's not just a few bad racist apples in a police department or at an airport. 
It's all of us who in big ways through our actions and in small ways by our silences support this lie, because that's what it is, right? It's a lie that somehow black folk are just more dangerous than the rest of us. So not only do I believe that we've misdiagnosed the problem, I also think we have the wrong cure to it. We keep offering up education as a solution to all racial injustices in the United States. It's kind of what I call sometimes in my classes as the Robitussin of civil rights. Right? Like, when I was little, my mom like, loved Robitussin. She would give me it, you got a cold Robitussin, flu Robitussin, right? Like allergies, like Robitussin. Like, where's the Benadryl? <laughs> but just like Robitussin is not a cure-all for all types of sicknesses, Education is not a cure-all for all of America's racial sins. And yet, education is still how most Americans understand their responsibility to fixing contemporary racial injustices. Our measure of how far we have come in the area of race relations is most often calculated in how integrated our schools are, how many innovative education experiments are currently going on, and how many federal dollars are committed towards education. But the problem, the, current, the contemporary problem surrounding the killing of unarmed blacks is not a problem that boils down to providing greater educational opportunities to blacks. This is a misdiagnosis. A book is not going to stop the bullet barreling through a gun at Rakia Boyd in Chicago. And longer classroom times are not going to save Freddie Gray from being illegally stopped and then manhandled by police in Baltimore. This is what I know for sure that in order to combat continuing racial injustices today, we must expand our vision and our responsibility to what civil rights actually means. We must include the battle against racist violence in our understanding of civil rights. Instead of education, what if we place freedom from racist violence at the crux of what it means to be free and equal in the United States? Doing so does not mean that we necessarily dislodge education. But it means that if racism and white supremacy are a rock fortress, that we assemble a greater arsenal of weapons to break the damn thing down. <laughs> I know this is not an easy task, but I know that it can be done. So in my real life, I'm a political scientist and a historian, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on a surprising finding that before the civil rights group, the NAACP, focused on its historic campaign against segregated education, the NAACP spent the first two decades of the 20th century focused on fighting escalating levels of racial violence that blacks endured as a result of the actions from police, politicians, and private white citizens in the South and in the North. In order to wage this big campaign against racial violence, the NAACP organized mass demonstrations in the streets. They lobbied Congress to pass an anti-lynching bill. They litigated and won a landmark decision in front of the Supreme Court. And they petitioned three different presidents to make a statement against lynching. It was this massive, extraordinary, in-your-face campaign that forced America to confront lynchings, and mob violence against African Americans. It asked America how strong was its commitment to protecting black lives. As a result of this work in the early 20th century, the rates of lynching and mob violence dramatically decreased. 
I tell this story about the NAACP's historic kind of campaign against racial violence because I believe our past history can light a way out of the present darkness. If we listen to what this history tells us, then we must struggle through this current moment. We must confront the ways that our actions and our institutions lead to a differential treatment of blacks, even if done unintentionally. Today, people across the United States are taking to streets and are demanding to be seen. Not as dangerous, but as people whose lives have value and deserve protection. Some of these groups are associated directly and some indirectly with the Black Lives Matter movement. Without the efforts of these groups, so many of these killings of unarmed blacks would have been swept under the rug and we would have lost attention long ago. But so many of these activists have denied the comforts of silence and they are being active around this issue. Their message and my message to you today is that we must pay closer attention to the way that black people are treated. The stories of police brutality and killings of unarmed blacks is not a story about black people. It's a story about all of us, about racial progress and the sovereign durability of American racism. It's about if we will stop making the mistakes of our past and confront our own complicity in this great American lie that somehow black people are more dangerous than others. And finally, it's about if we have the courage to take a collective stand against racial injustice today. This year, nearly half of my students in my race and politics upper division course participated in a walkout in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Halfway through my lecture, I could hear the swelling crowd of students, teachers, and community members in the quad at the University of Washington. I smiled to myself as I had a flashback to the conversation that I had with Kenny now five years ago. He was right, of course. My books and my silence will not save these students, but their activism, their courage in challenging the status quo and this movement just might. In policing, we use evidence to solve crime. Imagine if we used evidence to prevent crime. Sir Robert Peel had that imagination. He founded Modern Day Policing and the London Metropolitan Police. His primary mission was to reduce crime and disorder, and whose success would be based on the absence of crime and disorder and not on police activity itself. Today, ironically, the gauge of an officer's success is that activity. Arrest, citation, searches, and stops. A good day in policing is when I've hooked and booked all day long. Um, but police, our interventions in people's lives have impacts that are far-reaching and often have negative consequences that harm our communities, our economy, and sometimes our very humanity. When I had about three years on in patrol, my partner and I responded to a domestic violence call. And when we got there, the couple was on the doorstep, Dwayne and Stephanie. 
And because of the call and Dwayne's size, I took him, searched him, and put him in the back of the squad car. And he understood. He was polite and compliant and understood I was trying to keep everybody safe. And I went back and I talked to Stephanie. And Stephanie told me that her and Dwayne had been fighting all day long and that the fight had accumulated with him grabbing her by the shirt and throwing her down the stairs, ripping her shirt in the process. Stephanie showed me bruises that were in healing stages and cuts that had been scabbed over, evidence that those injuries didn't occur on that day. My partner and I searched the house and we couldn't find a shirt anywhere. So my partner took their oldest child, who was 10, to talk to him, and I went back to Duane. And Duane told me that, yes, he and Stephanie had been fighting all day, that they were running out of money and food, and Duane was unemployed. And he had an opportunity that weekend to work a construction job, but it meant going away and staying at his mom's house. And Stephanie was so overwhelmed raising their six kids, four of which were under the age of five, that she didn't want him to leave. She told Duane if he left, she'd call the cops and tell us that he had committed domestic violence. But because he loves Stephanie and his kids, he actually stayed and waited for us to arrive. I went back to my partner, um, who had talked to the 10-year-old, and he had said that it was verbal only. So my partner and I decided that we were going to release Duane. The problem was, is I placed handcuffs on Duane and put him in the back seat of a squad car, which meant he was technically under arrest. And our rules in our organization, I had to call a supervisor to have him released. And I told my sergeant what happened, and he said, absolutely not. Our rules state that with domestic violence, you shall arrest. And because I have an attitude, I said, no, it doesn't. It states if I have reasonable suspicion, I shall arrest. And I don't have reasonable suspicion, and either does my partner. And my sergeant said, I don't care. You take him to jail. So my partner and I weren't very happy about the decision, but we took Dwayne to jail. And some might say that I had no choice. But Viktor Frankl would disagree. In A Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl writes about his time in a concentration camp. And what makes humans different from animals is our ability to have control over our minds, our thoughts, and that we have choice. So I had choice. And on that day, I chose my career over Dwayne's freedom. And I don't think this is what Sir Robert Peel wanted when he created the police. I don't think he wanted officers making arrests to appease their sergeants or making arrests so they could have career advancement. This thinking has returned us back to that punitive criminal justice system that Sir Robert Peel strove to destroy. Because now, due to tough-on-crime politics and the war on drugs in the United States, we have steadily increasing sentence lengths. And those sentence lengths, because of minimum mandatory sentencing and three strikes laws, we've gone from 1973 of having 350,000 people in prison to over 2 million people today, and over 5 million people that are supervised by the criminal justice system on probation and parole. We went from spending $9 billion in 1982 to over $70 billion today. Money that could be better spent on our health care, our education, or even crime prevention itself. Because Sir Robert Peel, when he was trying to 
changed the criminal justice system, he saw it for what it was, an extremely harsh and punitive system, especially to the poor. He worked his whole career to reduce over 200 statutes from the death penalty. He introduced monetary fines instead of imprisonment for minor offenses. He strove to give the working class a livable wage and then created the police. And it was all to create a system that was much more compassionate and humane and peaceful than the system that we already had. And you might think, why do you care in the UK? Because the United States doesn't have a monopoly on this. In the UK, currently there's 85,000 people imprisoned, and your numbers are also steadily increasing. And these numbers aren't increasing because there's a huge increase in crime. That's a minor part of those numbers. It's increasing because we've increased our sentence lengths. And Durloff and Nagin, two researchers, reviewed all the re deterrence research and showed that increasing severity of sanctions actually has a very marginal effect on reducing crime and disorder. Yet we still continue down this path. So perhaps we might look at something like medicine, because medicine was once like policing, where doctors use their intuition or local custom or tradition when treating their patients, often ignoring scientific evidence. Dr. Spock was a 1950s very popular pediatrician who recommended to, to parents that they put their babies to sleep on their bellies. And although his advice was benign, because his intention was to do no harm, the outcome was detrimental. He could not see individually his advice, the outcome that it had on his patients. But when they aggregated all the data and they started showing that there was an increase in infant deaths, the only thing they were able to correlate it to was sleep position for the babies. And so began the back to sleep campaign. And immediately, infant deaths started to drop off. Today, in, in hospitals, they have evidence-based practices. And the culture of hospitals and doctors is to follow science, to follow evidence, to use clinical trials to figure out what works and what doesn't work in medicine. And like Dr. Spock, in, in policing, we too have that Achilles heel. We're now beginning to figure out what works and, do, what, and what doesn't work in policing, some of which random patrol policing doesn't work to reduce crime and disorder. We know that increasing sanctions doesn't reduce crime and disorder. Programs like Scared Straight and Boot Camps doesn't work to reduce recidivism. But yet, proactive policing that's focused on a place rather than a person works to reduce crime and disorder. Hotspot policing, where officers focus their proactivity on a small geographic high crime area, works to reduce crime and disorder. And programs like Project Hope, where drug offenders are given social support and immediate short-term sanctions for dirty drug texts, work to reduce recidivism. And even knowing all of this, and there's much, much more research besides that, we have yet in both the US and in the UK to institutionalize evidence-based practices. Now, I'm not advocating that we stop arresting, because obviously I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> But what I, might, what I am saying is that the police, the politicians, you know, and even the public, that we need to follow the evidence. That we need to follow, instead of intuition or tradition or custom, and what we think is common sense, we actually need to follow what the research shows. Now in the case of Duane, I know you might think, you know, he was innocent, so he was an anomaly. But police have discretion, so we choose where to police, 
what laws to enforce, and who to enforce them on. So although I thought Duane was innocent, another officer could have thought he was guilty, or another officer could have thought he's innocent today, but he'll be guilty tomorrow, so I might as well arrest him today. And police, for the most part, patrol in areas that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, which means that police will always impact at a disproportionate rate the poor, and especially the poor minority. An arrest and conviction will stigmatize them for the rest of their lives because they will forever check a box that designates their status in society, and it will diminish their capacity to get a job, to get housing, to get college student loans, and even to vote. So forever, they will be paying for their crimes. Arrest as an answer to tough on crime politics or the war on drug is, drugs is just returning us to this pre-Pelian punitive era. And like Dr. Spock, officers, we need to aggregate the data so we could actually see what our decisions as individual officers, how it impacts society at large. Three days after my partner and I arrested Duane, a 911 call came in from a hysterical female. And my partner wasn't with me at the time. He was off for the night. But I recognized the address as Stephanie and Duane's address. And so I made sure that I went to the call. And on the way there, I was really upset because I was thinking, great. <laughs> Here I am, I'm gonna be put in another really bad situation. I'm gonna to have to arrest Dwayne again. Or this time, Dwayne's committed domestic violence and my sergeant's gonna be right. And I'm gonna validate his whole entire theory of just take him to jail anyway. When I got to the house, Stephanie was in the kitchen and she was hysterical and unintelligible and the kids were really upset. And I was trying to get out of her where Dwayne was. And she finally got out that he's in the basement. So as I was going down the basement, I was thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to find? Is he going to be angry? Is he going to be upset? And what I found was Dwayne hanging from the rafters. And I went over to him and looked at his face and touched his arm to see if I could save him. But I couldn't. He was dead. And next to his body was a photo of his children and 35 cents. And it was all the money he had in the world to leave to his kids. I got to see the impact of my decisions and my arrest on another human being, his significant other, and his children. Police intervene in people's lives on a daily basis. And rather than following tradition or custom or individual preference, I think it's time we just followed the evidence. Thank you. All right, now it's time to end the program. Peace out. Till the next one. Bada talk.